Hello and welcome to the Blue Collar Yields podcast. I am your host, Tom Migliaccio. At Blue Collar Yields, we will talk about real estate, entrepreneurialism, and many other topics. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts. And while there, don't forget to rate this show and subscribe. Welcome back to part two of Jim Cotrambone. This is a continuation from the last episode with him. Jim, thanks for agreeing to do a part two. We really appreciate you taking the time. We know the Joseph Fund has a lot of things going on. We weren't able to wrap that up in one episode, which is fine. We just wanted to make sure we touched all the bases. How are you today, sir? Terrific. I'm like pleased to be a sequel. This is great. (laughs) Congratulations on the event you just threw. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that and how it went? We were at the Please Touch Museum in Philadelphia, just outside the city limits. And there was all kinds of historical significance to that space. It's Memorial Hall, where there was the celebration of the country's centennial 100th birthday. But in the center of the museum is a replica of the arm of the Statue of Liberty holding a torch. And for us, there was incredible symbolism in that our founder, who really kind of has given us our vision and marching orders for a way to really lift, in a large way, the the city of Camden, New Jersey, there's this torch in the middle of the museum, and we felt like the torch has been passed to us. 465 very enthusiastic participants, guests, kind of participated with us, and It really does uh, help us to get to seeing some black on our P&L statements, and we generate about 370000 in revenues. And so it's an event that has continued to grow, and next year on November 7th will be another different venue in Philadelphia that can accommodate an even larger group. So all are invited to consider being with us in 2020. And how can they reach out to you for more information? We will ultimately have more things to refer to on our website, josephfundcamden.org. But the short path is 856-576-7012. That's our office number. Although details are still being put together, we know venue, we know date, and we kind of have a sense of what a guest might experience. Most important thing of the evening, of course, is to really get a sense of the stories that are unfurling. We will see about 3,000 unique people among the six different organizations that we're in support of. And anything from little three-year-olds up to young adults that are in the education realm, we have a homeless shelter collection of individuals that are really the most vulnerable and that are getting back on their feet. And that's a great story, what's unfolding down there. We have young people coming in from all around the country to serve in Camden, and we are helping low-income families with the ultimate dream, and that's ownership of a home. Now I want to talk about the LUCY outreach, and LUCY is an acronym that stands for Lifting Up Camden's Youth. The program has been a huge success. Participating students have a high school graduate rate of 100%, and even more impressive, 93% college enrollment rate since 2008. In a city like Camden, where the graduation rate is in the mid-60s, what do you guys do differently to prepare these kids for success? You know, I think it's a reflection of the charism of our founder, Father Bob McDermott. 
I had something said to me the other day that really profoundly struck me. I was referring to guests in the homeless shelter as the persons that we receive. And this woman said to me, so often we hear you say a population or the homeless. She said, you don't have that language. You talk about individuals. And that's the same way that it's applied with the youth. So often was the fact that I underestimated my young children. And I think it's easy to underestimate young people who may not have had the seasoning of seeing a brighter or a broader world. And I think the success there is that we really do open their minds to the possibilities and give them exposure to some of the things that just might not be within the realm of the possible within their own family unit. 70% of the young people, and there's about 400 or unique individuals between the ages of 12 and 19 that come to that program, that 70% are going back to a single or a no-parent household. So commonly, there's a few influences, and sadly, there are a few positive influences that can really give them the perspective of your dreams are limitless as long as you apply yourself and really find you can navigate a path towards success, which, again, the structure is put in place. The after-school program is, for lack of a better term, a sellout. So we have maximized the amount of students that can enroll in these after-school programs simply because we would need to add additional resource and we've added a second part-time instructor so that we can expand enrollment in that program to now over 160. Some, it's a limited number, but for us, it's a really terrific number of individuals that can find their way to a really healthy and safe and wise and strong fundamental base, as opposed to some of the other temptations that a, a student might have in Camden after the hours of 2.30 in the afternoon. So who is the program open to, and is there a selection process? And if so, what is that? It's kind of an open-door policy. One of the really cool thing. In adversity comes victory, I guess. Initially, Lucy had a place here at 29th and Federal Street, and their lease was not renewed. There was a little bit of panic as to where the organization could resettle. We got some assistance from Virtua over across town in being able to use some space that they were repurposing and ultimately had an opportunity in 2018 to find what they're calling a forever home. And that home happens to be short walking distance from one of the local high schools, Woodrow Wilson. So what has happened is there's been a significant curiosity of young people you get the street credibility and then you get street chatter and then the curiosity seekers meander across the street and look into you. And that's when we started to see numbers grow somewhat exponentially. They're not a strong criteria to, to receive you, but then there's a strong criteria applied for you to stay. Give me a Lucy's success story that really sticks out to you. There's quite a few. I think of two brothers they're Irish twins. They're about 10 months apart. One came right after another, both of which had had exposure to incidences of trauma in their life. In fact, they were witness to a murder on the street and you know, were shuddered 
because of the fact that it wasn't safe to be out and about in the street after school hours because you either find your way into a space that you would prefer not being in, or you might just be an innocent victim of something that came upon you that you had no involvement in. The two of them talked about the violence that surrounded them and the temptation for them to then realize that their best defense of some of the environment that they inherited was to be part of a gang. And so Lucy became this alternative choice for them where they realized it might not be the popular decision among their street colleagues, but they really understood that within the word impossible is the word possible. And the possibilities were contained in their coming and recognizing that there was after-school help so that they could be advancing in their formal studies and that there were others that had walked the path of success that they could model those behaviors or they could emulate what was possibly going to be their future by seeing somebody else that was relatively close to them in age that had succeeded and went on. One of them is now college enrolled while the other went to work. So both of their paths were rather different, but both of them found the possibilities of what the future could provide depending on their needs and how they applied themselves. One of the really neat things about a place like Lucy, and you said, what's the criteria for entry? It's that you come as you are and that you're met as you are. And from there, there's a little help in structuring the you that you'd like to become. And if that includes an academic path, college and post-secondary work, there are different activities on different days of the week. So you come Tuesdays and Thursdays and you move in that direction. Or if you have more of a career endeavor and you're looking to have life skills that allow you to balance a checkbook and be able to maintain the ability to interview for a job that you would like and what are some of the life skills that include financial literacy, et cetera, in maintaining and managing your affairs. The other thing is that both of these young men looked for mentoring opportunities and then could one-on-one with someone that had either already succeeded or was in a career that they themselves aspired to. So they understood what are some of the shortcuts in being successful if, if I'm going into an engineering track or the one boy's case, it was cutting hair. You know? Wow. Jim, has anyone ever graduated from Lucy and then gone into the trades and maybe they joined the carpentry team that you guys help run? Yes, there have been. Every person that walks into the door over there is going to successfully complete a diploma or a GED. There's always that focus that if nothing else is begotten, it's that we are in a rapidly changing world that is requiring lifelong learning. And whatever skills you can begin to develop in a young person in which you plant this seed on continuous learning and adaptability to new environments, that to me is significant success. About 3% of young people that come into the program go into the military and they'll find a skill by going there. The first set of students that have graduated from universities like St. Joseph's or Holy Cross Fordham, some really significant institutions of higher learning that Lucy graduates are now claiming as part of, we were our first Villanova student that began matriculating this past year. 
a good many of them are looking to go into the community college route because transportation is somewhat of an obstacle and the ability to stay away is sometimes difficult for a student to really acclimate to being completely independent. So starting off with a little more calculated steps at Camden County Community College or Rowan University at Burlington Counties, those are the more common pathways for young people. Personally, I think that's brilliant to take that route, really get your feet on the ground, get a sense of what a college-level work is while still being relatively close to home and within the confines of what is familiar and feels comfortable. So let's switch over to the Romero Center Ministries. And maybe I'm reading this wrong. You've overseen 20,000 hours of community service. Is that correct? It's a cumulative number, but yeah. Right. That's insane. 20,000 hours devoted to improving a community is extremely impressive. Can you tell us more about the Romero Center and what it looks to accomplish in the neighborhood? It's a really neat concept. So as the story is told, a gentleman by the name of Sean Klowski, who grows up in North Jersey, went to Del Barton, all boys private high school. Then from Del Barton to Villanova, all of the students that come to the Romero Center from these various 15 different states around the country that come to Camden to serve, a lot of them know what their near and even long-term future may provide because they come from academy or preparatory schools and are legacies and are going to go into family businesses or follow a parent in the same career path that might be a, you know, a white-collar professional. So that's the demographic, if you will, of a typical Romero retreatant. Back to Sean. So Sean comes here and he's asked to assist uh, Father Bob in some of the early days of the St. Joseph's Carpenter Society. And in their surveying the city of Camden, nine square miles of very much the same lack of education, high level of unemployment and poverty, Sean was shuttered. I've never seen that large an area, nine square miles. This is the late 1980s, where there was so much need and so little opportunity. And so the concept of exposing young people like Sean, who had never really had exposure to the kind of plight that was evident in the late 80s in the city of Camden, became a mission. And so now for 20 years, they start in 1998, they're in their 21st year of this curricula called the Urban Challenge in which groups come from 15 different states in the union, as far west as California and Arizona, and as close as the city of Philadelphia, come across the bridge. And they have this six-day experience where they are fanned out over the course of six days to different nonprofits that are doing a myriad of work in the city of Camden. So in a given week, a single person on the Urban Challenge program could work with young people, with mentally handicapped, with folks that are working on environmental issues in the city. So they get this full range experience, but the most important part of the experience is that each day they are challenged to engage one individual at whatever site they're deployed to. Their job is to really get to know one person 
And that evening when they're debriefing and decompressing and experiencing what the seven pillars of social justice are in formal teaching, they're also then lending the story of the individual that they encountered. So you've got 40 people that are here on retreat. They bring back 40 stories over six days. That's 240 individual stories unique to that person and how it is that they came to be in Camden. A lot of what they hear are abuses of addictions, drug, alcohol, people falling real heavily on hard luck or bad choices, and now are trying to reconstruct their lives or just find themselves in a plight that they didn't anticipate and are looking for the right uh, structure to dig themselves out. Going back to the Sean example, these are young people that have really kind of never seen that close that type of circumstance of poverty or challenge, and they're very changed because they experience it. One of the other elements of the program is that about three days in after having had three square meals and plenty of rest, they come back from a volunteer assignment, they can take a little nap and get themselves recharged for the evening program. They're about three days into it, and they're grouped into families of four and are given $12, which would be the equivalent of one day of a welfare stipend. They're driven to either one of the local bodegas or there are no supermarkets in the entire city of Camden. So they would go to a market and they got to stretch their $12 among four people and try to have a nutritious recharging over the course of a day. And what you find is some really undernourished, highly carbohydrated, grumpy people who really don't understand why it is that they feel as fatigued and de-energized as they do. And then they're sat down and they said, now, imagine if that's your existence. And imagine how you would feel if that was day in and day out, where you are overheated or you have had things taken from you or you're a victim of crime or you can't find something to eat. Imagine how hard it must be for that individual that's in that circumstance and now you know why they feel like they do or they look like they do, because they just can't find a way to overcome that circumstance. And it really sensitizes them because then they are the ones that have experienced it and they can better look through the eyes of the individuals that they encounter now having experienced it than any time prior. I think our friends at Campbell's, they're trying to combat that problem, if I'm not mistaken, right? They're trying to put up some corner stores or something around the city? They've had uh, pop-up farmer's markets that they have helped to fund. They have helped to bring fresh produce into the bodegas as part of defraying the cost that the store owner would have to pay so they can pass along saving to customers that come in. One of the real uh, breakthroughs that I have seen, at least here in East Camden, there actually are two new places that are produce stands that have opened up. One right here on Federal Street, about four blocks from us. You really see that there's these little tiny signs of progress being made so that the neighbors can walk to a place where they can buy fresh fruits and vegetables. So the Joseph Fund also supports the St. Joseph's Pro-Cathedral School. That's a private K-8 school can you tell us a little bit more about the school? So about 11 years ago, the city of Camden was probably in the worst 
statistical circumstance for education where the public school's graduation rate was less than 50% and the dropout rate was over 23%. That was the circumstance in the city. This precedes all of the neighborhood policing and a lot of the great leaps that the city has made in the last decade. So you're looking at that and there were five Catholic schools that were operating as part of a diocesan model. And the diocese made a decision that it could no longer afford to underwrite the costs to operate these schools and still have it affordable to the families that were sending their children there. The average cost to educate a child in the city of Camden as part of its its public or charter school system is about $26,000 per child. The average cost to educate a child in one of these private schools, like St. Joe's Pro Cathedral, is about $8,200. So the first thing is the economy of scale is significantly more manageable. However, there's not one, maybe of the 241 students enrolled this year, you've got maybe a couple of families that could afford tuition at that level. Not really. Uh, 8,200 is significant. The average family can pay between 900 and 1,200 dollars. So the rest of that has to be privately raised. 11 years ago, a group called the Catholic Partnership Schools was formed, and it spun the schools off from the oversight of the diocese. Debt, which was considered about $700,000 at the time, was forgiven by the diocese so that this new organization did not have to start out with a significant debt quotient to the schools and then kind of handed the burden of maintenance and property upgrade and all of that stuff to this partnership. So what we do is we focus on one of the five schools that are in the partnership, and that's St. Joseph's, in trying to assist with tuition assistance and or other capitalized projects that might otherwise not be funded within the standard operations budget. For example, they had an old tank for an oil heating system in the school in I guess, 2017 or so. There was a leak in that tank that was causing potentially noxious gases. They closed the school down and there was no heat. So we could go in and get three estimates, bring in a contractor, and within a four days time frame, have the repair completed, new tank brought in, and heat restored. Can't learn if you're in an environment that's not conducive to learning. And the second part of that was we put in a conversion mechanism so that if down the road it was deemed more economical to go with a natural gas solution, there was a conversion infrastructure that was already in place and replacement would not be so burdensome. So that's more dramatic, obviously, when you're talking about a repair in cold months for a heating system. But we also had a young man who had kind of distinguished himself in a STEM program and wanted to learn more about aviation. And there's a program here in Camden that teaches kids to the love of aviation and gets them kind of curious and interested. And Edwin kind of distinguished himself and wanted to go to flight camp out in Wisconsin 
in the summer of 2018. And so he applied for a scholarship through this aviation entity, and he wins the scholarship but has the burden of having to get himself there, the cost of transportation. So the Joseph Fund went in and helped subsidize the flight costs so that with the right strategic partnership, you really can have a young person who might never have that within their sphere distinguish themselves and now having been in the cockpit of several planes as part of this aviation camp that he went to out in Wisconsin, comes back and he's you know all fired up and on his way to heaven knows what career, but certainly with experiences that weren't possible if there wasn't an opportunity to have that. So I read that the average student gets over 85% of their tuition covered, and then the family has to pay the remaining on average, we'll say 15%. It's the part of the philosophy we've always maintained. Everybody has to have, pardon the expression, skin in the game. There's too much statistical data out there that would show that if you gave 100% subsidy to an individual, there's never any ownership of their accomplishment. However, if you require that there is a partnership where everybody has a part of satisfying the cost of tuition, then that person is going to be much more self-reliant, much more self-sufficient, and much more self-confident in moving forward in life. So obviously the burden's on the family, but the family is also taking very seriously the investment in their child, and the child is very cognizant of the gift that they've been given. We had a young fellow, you were talking about the the gala earlier when we started the conversation. We had a guest at the gala, uh, Rakeem Miller, And Rakim tells the story of just the environment that was created there. He doesn't get there until the fourth grade. Great potential, but failing out. And his folks decided that St. Joe's was going to be the best environment for him to really take seriously his studies. He says that was the proverbial shift in his life. Today, he's a doctoral candidate over at um, Rutgers for education, two children. He lives in Sicklerville with his wife, advanced degrees, and to this day as an advocate and proponent of St. Joseph's and the education that he received. Also going to work with us on a project in which we try to connect some of these former educators back to the alums so that we can invite more alumni participation and stories of stewardship, but also some financial help in giving back that which they felt they were given now that they've established themselves in careers. Rakeem's got a young family, and he's probably not going to write a big check yet. But one thing is for sure that he sees the value of it, is willing to give from his means, and then ultimately may someday, with his doctoral degree and distinguished career, may be a major benefactor to the school. How do you get the staff to be so committed to the mission that you guys are trying to accomplish? It's kind of part of the interview process. The last time I was interviewing for the assistant position here at the Joseph Fund, you can recognize the heart of a person. The young lady that I wound up hiring had spent three years in the Peace Corps in the Philippines. She grew up at 27th and Stevens, right around the corner from us here in Camden, but had a world of experience. 
the greatest challenge that you hear a lot of the political voices in Camden say is that we have a really difficult time retaining the talent that comes out of the city. The great indicator of success for a Camden native is to have left. It's not to have come back. And in Chanel's case, she came back with a real desire to want to serve in the neighborhood and the city that she felt she brought so much with her, but her opportunity came because she had a strong family and there were connections that helped her in getting a bachelor's degree and service within the Peace Corps and whatnot. Well, she wanted to be a walking example of the possibilities. Another young lady who provided testimony at our gala this year, Melissa Rodriguez. Melissa comes here again in elementary school, single mom, and she talked about the mentoring that she received from Father Bob, who acted as a father figure on her behalf. I just think that they're out there, and those candidates so often have such a heart for the mission that they find you in some ways. So layering onto them the culture that we try to create is really not a heavy lift. It's actually something that's very consistent with their character. And honestly, we do use the predictive index and some of these other models that when you're selecting talent to come into the organization, you're trying to make a close fit to one, the essence of the work you're doing, and two, the culture that you're trying to create. So there's some tools that get applied. And in our case, that a donor does in-kind giving to us by helping us screen potential employees for the various organizations. And so a lot of times we get a pretty close hit simply because we have that quantitative opportunity to test them out and invite them to be a part of what we're doing. And if we're a good organization, we kind of incorporate the gifts that they bring within that culture. I notice that a large part of your revenue comes from individual donations outside of the whole text, the Campbells and our friends that write the big checks. A lot of personal people are writing that as well. Does knowing that so many other people want to help the cause help you stay motivated? Without question, that's where the greatest lift comes from. The Lilly Institute of Philanthropy operates out of Indiana University, and each year they've got a report entitled Giving USA, and it shows what the state – the United States leads the world, leads the globe in philanthropic pursuits. We are the most generous country in the world, and I think that's because of our Puritan beginnings, and I think we've always had as a country an eye out for one another. There's Within our organization, though we're not considered faith-based, all of our value systems and our value and vision statements all come out of the Christian tradition. The simple fact of the matter is Giving USA each year publishes where is the division of giving, and 70 to 80 percent of giving of the $400 billion that Americans give to charitable interests come from individuals. There's a growth in donor-advised fund giving and family foundation giving because those are a better tax structure so that a donor can maximize their giving. But if you look, corporate giving across country, about 6 to 7% of all giving, and it's significant, but Really and truly, whether it's a foundation, whether it's a corporation, whether it's a bequest, 
whether it's just someone writing you a check, it's always a person making that decision. So like your business and like most business in general, it's about building strong relationship. So with us, if we really are wise and it's easy to strain resources to try and cultivate and thank, it's really the only way that you can be successful. And that's to have individuals making a decision on giving to the work that you're doing. Similar to small businesses, nonprofits have limited resources and often must make do with less. Can you discuss the entrepreneurial mindset that it takes to run a successful nonprofit? You really kind of hit the right parallelism. And I think that this is, in the last decade or so, that's the trend. More nonprofits are structuring themselves to operate like a small business with a strong focus on fiduciary responsibility and entrepreneurs' risk tolerance, risk management mentality. I admire the daylights out of entrepreneurs because they bring such gusto and spirit to the work that they do, and they are able to attract people that are of like mind. That's the nonprofit model. It's where you are constantly being able to attract others that really can resonate with the way that you want to operate your business. And boards, I know my board, I've got 20 trustees to the Joseph Fund of Camden, and they are always requiring the quantitative measurement of success within the organization and, you know, kind of hold my hand to the fire on whether it's a sales routine, how many connections have you made, how many contacts, and how many of those contacts turned into significant conversation, which then turned into potential benefactor support from a financial perspective. It's not that different. You're managing spreadsheets like a business does. We're not a commodities business or we're not selling units of product or anything quite like that, but we're more of a service mentality where it's it's about really being customer-centered and marrying the mission and the work that we're doing to people that really resonate, whether it's young people having a chance to aspire and to reach their highest destiny, or whether it's really being able to connect with a person who's furthest down on their luck in a shelter, but just need a little bit of human connection and whatnot to thrive. But that doesn't happen unless you have a business mentality that says, we've got to manage our profit and loss. You'd love to be in surplus, but so commonly you're not. But the only way to get grant funding is if you're demonstrating that you've got three months of unrestricted funds that are in reserve. So if you're not thinking like a business person, you're not going to attract others that are willing to, quote, invest And they don't need to see a monetary return on their investment, but they definitely want to see a quantitative growth of the work that you're doing, which in a homeless shelter, it's placing people in permanent housing. In an education realm, it's satisfying 100% graduation rate. Or if it's in the housing realm, like we talked about the last time, it's really having someone that knows how to manage their affairs and maintain a household well into the far future. Jim, thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate the mission that Father Bob created and that you're carrying forward. Guys, our listeners, if you want to get involved and help Jim out, I always say that he's the hardest working man in Camden. I know he certainly needs it. Please go visit 
josephfund.org. Reach out to Jim and his staff if you want to get involved in any of the things that they covered, either in this episode or the last episode with Jim. Jim, again, thanks. We really appreciate your time. Tom, you'll forgive me for correcting you. It's Joseph Fund Camden. My apologies. Joseph Fund <laughs> Camden. Camden. <laughs> org. All right. Thanks. I really appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. If there are more topics you would like to hear about, you can email us at info at bluecollaryields.com. For more episodes, you can search Blue Collar Yields on Apple Podcasts.